Hi all, my name's Olivia Ross and I'm Extension Manager for the Southern South Island. And today I am here with Stuart Orme, who's a registered forestry consultant, to record a breakfeed podcast following our Progressive Ag Conference held in Gore in the early August. This is it, be able to give you guys that weren't able to attend a little bit of background to what was discussed and where you can go for more information. So today the topic we're covering with Stuart is right tree, right place. So practical placement of trees on farm has always been beneficial for many reasons. And during the session at the Progressive Ag Conference, Stu went through and looked at multiple uses for plants and trees and how they can add value and reduce overall farm emissions. So Stu is a registered forestry consultant and has extensive experience in New Zealand land use and management involvement with multiple tree species. So welcome Stu, thank you for joining us today. Do you want to give us a little bit of background of who you are and where you're based? Yeah, Maroonie, Olivia, thank you. Um, look, yes, um, born Southland, raised North Otago, came to the North Island for a year, about 40 of them ago. So we're based up here in the, in the wire upper. So been involved in mainstream forestry for, for over 40 years, but about 16 years ago, we started getting quite involved in, in other species, uh, indigenous uh, stuff other than pine. And at that stage, we had our own business and um, probably morphed into sort of agricultural consulting from a, from a tree perspective as much as anything. Awesome. So we know that there's lots of talk in regards to trees on farm these days. So you've obviously been involved from the beginning. Do you want to give us a little background, background of what, where we, how we've got here? Yeah, sure. So um, <clears throat> land use historically was we sailed out, found a country um, and plundered it. And so in New Zealand here, um, we took a lot of trees off to create farms. Uh, we then moved to plant trees to um, provide soil stabilization and other benefits. And um, over the years, uh, people have done reasonably well out of forestry or uh, they are still grinding their teeth because the strainer post is, was broken when it was logged. Awesome. With the advent of the ETS 12 years ago, all of a sudden, um, a lot of trees that may have had an environmental or a biodiversity value on farms, suddenly had a fiscal value through carbon credits. And uh, a lot of New Zealand agriculture has benefited from that. And more recently with the uh, Kyoto moving to the Paris Accord and New Zealand picking up on the um, carbon zero targets, of course, um, farm emissions have, have come to the fore and vegetation on farms plays an integral part on how those emission plans um, emission numbers may well look for individual farmers across the country in a few years' time. Awesome. So how can farmers add value and reduce their overall emissions at the same time so that trees on farm, business as usual? Well, I think it's, you know, it's, it's that um, adage, it's your land and your choice. It's about being informed in, in the choices that you can make. So... Yeah, most of us know that if we plant a bit of shelter, we can effectively reduce wind runs by between 20 and 90 percent, um, ambient temperature well over 10, um, and what have you. But we don't formalise that too well. If there's more, if any tree is more than a hectare in size, or a tree lot more than a hectare in size, it becomes eligible for the ETS. Current and currently, um, if a farm was to run an overseer profile while the trees on the farm would be taken into account and that would um, help in the emission reduction on that farm. And does it include all species of trees? 
all species of trees able to grow more than a metre in height, uh, sorry, five metres in height and, cool. and more than a hectare in size, yes. So that includes our natives as well? Absolutely. Awesome. Yeah. And how do they contribute to that fiscal or the bottom line of, into the ETS? So if a, a farmer was to um, enter their forest into the ETS, and it would have to be, have become forest since the beginning of uh, 1990, um, they could be allocated carbon credits and, um, and choose to sell them. So if you were planting a, a pine block today, um, you would probably, under averaging, you'd be able to sell the first 16 to 18 years carbon and not have to repay it as long as you um, replanted the trees when they were cut down. If you were, um, if you had poplar or indigenous forest that was ETS eligible on the farm, you could put that in. <clears throat> that would probably go into the, what we would call the permanent category, that it's not going to leave the farm. And so the credits from that could be sold as they generated. So as an example, if you had 100 hectares of indigenous reversion, and, and if you've only got one, just divide by 100, um, over the first 10 years, um, that would generate on average $414 a hectare a year in carbon. So the numbers are quite significant. And the, the opportunities that we tend to drive by and see people not taking advantage of uh, areas of indigenous reversion, poplar and willow plantings, sorts of things that people just don't understand that for the want of registering it into the ETS and building it into their farm plan, um, there's significant support there. So why are trees before 1990 not included? Uh, so it goes back to the international protocols that New Zealand has signed up to. And um, New Zealand signed into the Kyoto Protocol, which effectively said that we want to keep world emissions at the same level they are in 1990. And so any land that was in forest before 1990 um, was, if it was cut down, that was creating an emission. And of course, the, the treaty doesn't recognise the difference between uh, California native like pine forest and an Amazon native. So any forest that was in the ground before 1990 effectively had to stay there. And there are penalties um, if you change that land use in New Zealand. Um, but what it did do was it rewarded land use change from a low carbon profile to, to a high carbon profile. So if you created a forest on non-forest land after 1990, that was seen as an additional reduction in carbon in the atmosphere. And uh, that was allocated uh, carbon units, effectively one tonne of CO2 equivalent um, became a carbon credit and that could be traded. How is actually carbon measured in average? So one tonne of CO2 equivalent is, is effectively a, a carbon unit or in the New Zealand system, a New Zealand unit. And the government put together a series of regional tables where they went out and measured forests right across New Zealand for various species. And they put those tables together to say that on average at this age, this species would generate this much carbon per hectare. Cool. So yeah. they, and where can they find those? Are those tables available somewhere? Yep. Yeah. If you go to the MPI website, those, those tables are there. There's about six different tables. So you just got to make sure you're reading the right one. But um, no, that's, that's all there. Cool. And, and then, um, yeah, sorry, under, you, yeah, you mentioned the word averaging. So under Kyoto, uh, the way the, the rules worked, you could probably, if you planted a new forest, you, you could keep the first 10 years um, after harvest 
which was generous if you were planting a new forest after 2008. Under the Paris Accord, New Zealand has negotiated a thing called averaging. And what averaging says is that over the long, um, a long time frame, that if we change a non-carbon land or a low-carbon carbon profile land, so take um, hill country with pasture on it, plant a tree that occupies 35 metres of sky, um, you increase significantly the amount of carbon that that land might hold for the next 100 or 1,000 years. And the amount of carbon that you retain under averaging is equivalent to the average amount of carbon that never leaves that site. And those, so for a 30-year rotation, that's somewhere between 16 and, and 18 years. It's virtually double what the 10-year number is. Awesome. And is there assistance out there available for farmers to be able to get help to do those measurements? Yeah, sure. So again, um, if you've got less than 100 hectares, it's pretty simple. There's just the MPI tables and, and the rules were, are pretty easy to apply. Um, and for over 100 hectares, yes, there's companies that will come in and, and help measure those forests um, so that you get the actual amount of carbon. And what we tend to find is that if we're measuring forest, um, you know, we're getting regularly 140, 150% of tables for uh, pine forest. Indigenous depends on whether it's a dry site or a wet site. Cool. So with the upcoming emission plans, how can existing and new trees help to offset emissions? Well, it, I guess it comes back to if you can measure it, you can manage it. And so, as I said earlier, the, in the overseer profiles, it already takes account of forestry, both pre-90 and post-89, as I understand it, for emission reductions. I think when you're looking at your farm plan, um, and these days you've got your farm plan on one hand and your environmental plan on the other, um, those environmental plans will often suggest that you some areas should be planted. When you look at your farm plan, if you were to list all your paddocks in one column, um, what the economic farm surplus was in each one of those paddocks, what the future uh, capital and maintenance costs were on those paddocks, in many hill country properties, there's, there's areas that are performing much better than others. And if you put in there as the land use is vegetation, whether it's an indigenous reversion or um, production forestry, and look at the numbers, you can start to identify um, where other land uses um, might be more, more advantageous. Not only is there a fiscal number that goes with those trees, but there's also a sequestration carbon number that goes with them. And so if we gave an example at the, the workshop of a 4,000 stock unit property, um, where with eight hectares, I think of indigenous riparian, 26 hectares of hardwood poplar uh, supplementary planting, and a paddock at the back that was carrying four stock units uh, that was up for a whole lot of capital cost in reticulation and fencing, uh, putting that into pine, that the overall farm emissions on that farm at a gross level, um, it was carbon zero. Um, and that's just simply by measuring and getting it, getting it into your system, really. So you've mentioned uh, there before, Stu, farm plans and environmental plans, and we're starting to see them more come into one, aren't we? So um, rather than having separate ones, but if farmers were wondering what the difference, real key differences from your view was, what is your key difference between that farm plan and the environmental plan? I think 
a lot of the work that we used to do was to take the farm plan and the environmental plan and come up with some species options. And so the environmental plan said, this is what you've got to do. Uh, the work that we did was said, this is how you're going to pay for it. And this is what you're going to make from doing it. And so just little things like if you had a riparian that averaged 28 or 18 meters width and average, it's not ETS eligible. But if you were to plant a few poplar or willow poles outside the fence, all of a sudden it becomes ETS eligible, um, generates carbon, recognizable carbon, and generates uh, a revenue to go with that. Um, whereas the environmental plans used to be voluntary, be, the, uh, or what you did with them was voluntary, um, more and more it's be becoming a compliance issue. But I think in all of this stuff, there's, um, if you look for the opportunities, uh, there's plenty there. Definitely, yeah. We've seen that time and time again with an environmental plan. It's not just there for compliance. It can be there to uh, give a really good picture of your overall business. And I think they're all coming together really nicely. So just before we sort of start to wrap up there, one of the questions that came out of the Progressive Ag Conference to the ESU was in regards to what are split gases? Could you just briefly go through what that is? Uh, right. Well, I'm not the expert on this space, but um, under the Paris Accord, countries uh, report on their gross emissions. Countries then have a domestic ETS that tends to mirror the international treaty. And um, New Zealand has chosen not to, in its ETS for farming, not to be gross, but to use split gases. And this was at the request of agriculture as well, where it identifies farm emissions at uh, carbon dioxide, nitrous oxide, and methane levels. So whereas New Zealand has a net zero approach to carbon dioxide, um, what it's saying is that they want to reduce, instead of methane to zero, down 10% by um, 2030 and 24 to 47% by uh, 2050. And so it's New Zealand spent a lot of money um, trying to work out how they can mitigate those, those different gases. There's challenges that come with that. We can get most whole country property emission levels substantially reduced from a gross level. Um, trees suck up CO2, but they don't suck up methane or nitrous oxide. So you can have a situation where a farm has an emission profile that says it's emitting um, at say a level of 100 units, but at a gross level, it's not actually emitting anything because the trees are soaking it, soaking it all up. Um, I think one of the things that we haven't talked about is that historically uh, communities have wanted farmers to do things and through the RMA or the environmental plans have said this is what you've got to do and you have to pay for it. The big shift that I've seen probably in the last five years or so is that communities are now saying this is what you want to do but we're prepared to help pay for it and you've seen things recently come out like the one billion tree fund where if you're planting indigenous of over a hectare or more um, you know, there's $4,000 available. There's an extra 500 a hectare if it's land of interest and another 500 hectare um, for fencing. So if you're dealing with a riparian that, that meets those um, areas requisites, uh, you can be getting a, a tax-free grant of $5,000 a hectare to plant that what's effectively a tax-deductible expense. 
Awesome. And yeah, that was another question that did come up in regards to those funding. So I'm glad you've touched on those. And we have got the One Billion Tree. It's called the One Billion Tree Program, Our Future, Our Billions Trees, which was put together by Forestry New Zealand and um, Turaka. So we have got that available for anybody who would like to get hold of a copy and there is also the plant and food research trees for farmer decision support tool for farmers and that goes through the regards to on-farm establishment more in regards to those poplars and willows and some of those um, benefits other beneficial trees so if farmers wanted to find more information Stu on this topic and getting that right tree right place where could they go um so the MPI or Tiraka website has got information there's forestry consultants around the country that um, deal in this space um, regional councils yep cool and just to finish off what sort of your would be your key take home uh, from the discussions had there in Gore but also as your with your experience as a forest independent forestry consultant in regards to that what farmers should be really thinking about as we go into, I suppose we're now heading into spring, but as they, we look into this a bit more. Probably with regards to the funding that's currently available, um, understand that it's there. Understand what you've got on your property at the moment and where you want to take it and make applications for those funds going forward. And probably the big one is that in all of this, in all of this space, um, there's far more opportunities than there are obligations. And it's about um, being informed uh, so that you can take advantage of those. Awesome. Thanks very much, Stu. And as we've said, there's a lot of different information sources out there. So reach out, guys, for something there to be able to find that right tree and right place. So thank you very much, Stu, for your time and for being part of our Progressive Ag Conference and recording with us today.